Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Fred Schenkelberg. And this is Chris Jackson and Fred and I were just talking about how we go about overcoming cultural resistance to things like better reliability engineering practices. Yep, exactly. And it was uh, somebody, uh, Mark, actually used the uh, the comment form at ascendoreliability.com slash go slash SOR. Um, you know, most of our questions come in through LinkedIn, it seems like, and occasionally direct email, which is all fine. But uh, Mark chose to use the uh, comment form that we've mentioned for what? 648 episodes out of the 780 that we've done (laughs) or whatever a few times so uh, that's cool um but mark asked he says he's he's working um in the plant maintenance plant maintenance reliability type role and he just paraphrasing what he at we was talking about is he listened to an episode uh episode 77 so mark recommends listening to that i thought it was very good uh, and it was about uh cultural resistance to reliability and so he said we can come in and we can you know set up processes and we can uh, clean up the data we can show them data analysis and we can do all this cool stuff but then the maintenance team the operations team um just revert back to whatever they want to do anyway it's just a cultural resistance to addressing pre- preventative maintenance or predictive maintenance for example if you know if we have good data if we make the right measurements we could avoid downtime kind of thing we make all those arguments and you put all the stuff in place and they go yeah right whatever i'm going to ignore that and they go about doing what they're doing and I fully get that. I've seen that in organizations. And I know, Chris, you've been in some that have, um, we're going to do it this way. I don't really care what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think there are a lot of organizations who make what they believe to be genuine attempts to improve reliability engineering practices, which require some sort of cultural paradigm shift. I see a lot of them fail when they simply create like a, a working group of people that sit over there on a Tuesday, come up with some great ideas, and then essentially they generate processes and things like that, Mm -hmm. which get put into the library of processes that the organization has, and then expect after these processes have been formalized that there's going to be a groundswell of jubilation and relief that someone has added another process to their life and it just doesn't happen that way <laughs> well, when you put it that way you can i i'm resistant to it <laughs> i'm just like right yeah, no i don't need another form to fill out i just don't right and i and that's that's organizations who want to say that, that that they they take reliability seriously and so they get the work working group as soon as it becomes a working group and that working group includes people who aren't really particularly senior. They might be old, but not senior. Mm-hmm. All the, you know from the start that the leadership team just want the problem to go away. And having a working group with outcomes and outputs is one way of them convincing themselves that they're doing something about it, but it's, it's not the case. And so then you have those scenarios where I believe 
the question comes from where we've come up with these wonderful processes, but the maintenance team, for example, they're, they're not doing it. They're not implementing them. Well, mm-hmm. maintenance teams often have uh, factors that drive motivation that actually prevent them from doing the things you want them to do. So you're asking a maintainer to fix something, for example, and then spend time measuring it or taking notes or doing whatever you want them to do in order to track how the failure is degrading or progressing over time, Mm -hmm. which is fantastic. But if the maintenance team is evaluated on how fast they do maintenance and the faster they do maintenance, the better their performance appraisals or bonuses or what have you, uh, you got no chance, absolutely no chance for them to do what you want them to do. And the reality is, is they have to exchange their, in some cases, you know, bonuses, bonus structures, which is dollars that can be used to buy food for their family against your request to fill in additional forms after every job. It's never going to happen. And so it needs to, you need to start from the start. And before you introduce a pro- new process to, to, the, to the team, you need to explain to the team why they should be motivated and excited to do it and remove those cultural barriers, leadership need to be involved, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Otherwise, people, uh, the organisation is, is confusing effort with outcomes. It, I mean, I, I've railed against procurement organisations for years that have the 10% cost reduction year over year on all the components they buy, for example, all the parts mm-hmm. they buy. I, mean, I ran into one... Um, uh, plant that had a stock room that had a goal of reducing costs 10% year over year. So not having parts in, in the house ready to go fix something um, was not one of their goals. <laughs> so they would just wholesale get rid of a whole shelf of stuff and not restock it until somebody said, oh, I need that bearing. And then mm-hmm. the equipment's down for two days while we're trying to rush order this bearing in here. They're, they achieved their budgetary objective of cost reduction, uh, yet didn't factor in. And this is, goes back to just KPIs and the whole idea of setting yeah. objectives that have balance and all this other stuff. There's parts to that, but there's also just, even if they weren't tied to the bonus structure and they recognize that, oh yeah, that would help me if, you know, if I... If I knew what these symptoms were before I came out here and, and I could take the right kit with me and I could execute the repair, that would save me going back and forth and we get the lineup running quicker. And it, if, even if we're setting up processes that that would help them achieve their repairs better or faster or more assuredly that it would fix the right problem, whatever those kinds of things. And separate from bonus structure, separate from motivations, everything else, even if we're aligning exactly with that there's just an inherent resistance to change in general and so the same things you were talking about chris of you know how does this really help what's the onboarding let's get the the why this is the right thing to do is a whole different process than having a meeting on tuesday for a couple of months and and then rolling out i'll just do this now there's there's this part of there's a whole book full of all these methods of tools and techniques that we can pull out and apply, but that only the resistance part is interpersonal. That's a, the cultural part is how people think about stuff and make decisions and work together. 
that's not in the book. <laughs> that's not an FMEA, right? That's not uh, a, a kidding process that, you know, is t- contingent on the, the equipment and the symptoms that you're getting. Um, it just, that is so often overlooked. Oh, we got this great new process and then, all right, they weren't in the training. They don't know what that is. They don't know how it applies. They, what's in it for them kind of thing uh, is the first level of resistance. And then there's a second level of, well, we tried something last month and that didn't work. So we're not going to try this one. Yeah. Leadership. I'm just, uh, that, that phrase keeps going through my head. I mean, I, I have seen very few instances where, where, where people genuinely rail against the leadership, genuine leadership direction um, under the visage of resistance to change. Mm-hmm. If there is even a modicum worth of leadership momentum behind it. So for example, a leader can sit in that boardroom and say, okay, uh, mechanical engineer, engineering design team, just make sure it works, okay? Make sure it rel- make sure it passes that test. Uh, make sure you, whatever you do, make sure you go speak that working group and make sure everything's above board. Make sure this, make sure that. So the problem with those sorts of directions, even though it makes that leader feel, you know, across it, is that it's just essentially go and expend effort. I'm not going to tell you what, I'm tr- what I want you to achieve. I'm going to go and tell you just make sure that you've done what you need to do to tick our box or what done what you need to do to make this working group happy. Or just mm-hmm. make sure that that, t- it, that test you pass as opposed to what are we trying to achieve? Um, so a leader who instead says, hey, look, you know, we've had most, understand that th- these, com- these components, these dielectrics we're making, this is a real world example, uh, it's going into a machine that needs to have a, a 5% failure probability after, after five years. That's its warranty period. And it has hundreds of components. And so this little dielectric, it, it, its reliability needs to exceed 99%, which means that we, we know that 2% of our dielectrics are manufactured with imperfections that we like to fob off as manufacturing uh, infant mortality and we exclude them from data analysis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You go, no. In fact, every single fire that matters is going to be an infant mortality failure. So you need to focus a court. All of a sudden, you're starting a conversation as a leader where you're giving actual direction, which means stuff to technical people. And it's it's a world of difference how you how you approach that. Um, yep. And uh, that's not that of itself is not cultural change. That is a leader saying, "I need you to focus on this aspect." Um, you could actually it is a cult- cultural change because leadership essentially drives the culture. But it's it, it needs to it needs to be a, a critically deep or or intelligent comment from the start from the people who matter. Right. It it's easy to tell when you get a brush off. Like, oh yeah, just go do your reliability stuff. Versus, how's this affect the business? Let's dive into this. All right, now I get it. We right. got to do this, this, and this. Here's the options. Here that fits into this vision. That's where we got to go. Um, as opposed to, yeah, just, you know, start a working group. Uh, come back in a couple of years with the results. Let me know. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's it's night and day difference is what you're describing. Yeah. Yeah. And all of a sudden, what what would what then gets set up as cultural change or change management? If the boss is saying, hey, we need this, we need to focus on infant mortality failures for these following reasons. And like I was explaining to a client where, that, where one of the vendors essentially wanted to prevent, present data analysis where they're able to exclude 
what appeared to be infant mortality failures. Mm-hmm. They were sort of umming and ahhing, going, oh, yeah, they're, they're outliers, aren't they? You go, well, no, they're not outliers. <laughs> they're real failures that occurred. <laughs> but just to be clear, based on the reliability goals you've told me, then the only failures that matter from this particular component for you guys are infant mortality failures. In fact, let's not worry about any other type of failure. The only, only failure that matters is infant mortality. So as opposed to um, sending messages to your vendors where you allow, you allow them to fudge or, or, or just interpret data in a, in a particular way, say, you know, look, the things that you're excluding are the only things we're interested about. Exclude everything else. I wanna, I just, all I want to know is the reliability characteristics of those first 5% of failures. That's all I care about. That's, you could argue that's a cultural change, but it's also making stuff happen. Yeah. So what do you do in an organization where, you know, your, your engineering team gets it, basically? So you're working with the team and, and you're getting the engineering stuff set in place and they really like this idea of improving uptime of your plant and, and predictive maintenance is on board the way to go. But you don't have the leadership team. So now when you transfer over to the maintenance group or to operations team, uh, you just get a brick wall. Somewhere in that leadership structure, um, how do you, I mean, I've gotten to the point in some cases where they say, I just don't know what to say. So I'd write him a script, basically. <laughs> you know, it's like speechwriter, yep. basically, and on a couple of occasions. But in, at HP, it was it was a very popular class. I would go to a site and I would do design for reliability courses or classes for a couple of days, and it was almost all engineers and, and engineering managers. But then I would spend two hours doing the three questions managers need to be able to ask, or something that was a just dirt simple intro to reliability and i looked them right in the eye and it would be senior managers and i'd say you don't have the time nor the inclination or desire to really know reliability engineering which is fine you got a lot of other things that you need to pay attention to and all the other good stuff but you need to convey that it's important and they all would agree and it says and to do that you need to ask three questions really well you know and it conveys that you you understand enough and you're asking the right questions and then you'll be seen as a leader. And they all started taking notes. It was bizarre. (laughs) Just give them. And one of them was, you know, where's the data? Show me the data. (laughs) It was just basic, basic questions. Uh, You know, one of them was along the lines of if somebody shows them a calculation or a comparison, right? Well, what's the confidence on that? You know, what's show me the data? What's the confidence, and how's that impact the the bottom line, or how's that impact reliability? Um, and then it could vary a whole pile from there, depending on their division. But anyway, the the idea was that sometimes it takes coaching the senior managers to mm-hmm. be able to ask those right questions, and sometimes they they want that coaching, they want to know how do I this we want to achieve this reliability objective so there's uptime objectives how do i do that you know how do i put that together you know they want to do predictive maintenance to get increased better uptime but their messaging has always been just get the uptime just make it work better and so 
parts of the organization interpret that as don't do anything except fix it fast. Right. So how do you help somebody craft that message appropriately so that you get the a more efficient result to what they were trying to do? Um, there is, I mean, I, th- I think managers are looking for, you know, those wonderful, like you say, speeches they can write where the words are perfect and motivational and uh, convey a just desperate need or desperate desire to do something that's inherently good. But I, I my my experience is that you just can't walk, you cannot walk away from what happens thereafter. And I think a lot of managers want to do that. Mm-hmm. So if you have as a as a leader or a manager, um, let's do, use the term manager here, because they've been they, their their aim is to, for example, increase increase uptime. So it's all well and good crafting the perfectly scripted message that gets delivered immaculately in the conference room on 3.30 p.m. on a Wednesday. But then what I find is more, way more important, it's not, I think it's too dissimilar to what you're talking about, is then that leader or manager needs to go down to the production line or the, the plant or what have you and start talking. And start saying things like to uh, like to the hydraulic engineer, for example. What would you do if you wanted to improve the uptime for this particular pump or this whatever it is? Mm-hmm. Or what keeps you up at night? Um, what can we do to help you, etc., etc., etc.? What going back to the what keeps you up at night? That's a question I love asking because it sort of takes a sort of statistical or engineering uh, perceived peer-reviewed answer that you need to respond what is just say what keeps you up at night about uh, this thing failing or that what's going to cause this thing to fail <laughs> well it's the duct tape holding this pressure vessel together that's what keeps me up right because we don't have the money to actually fix this thing <laughs> because right is it, that's a problem yeah it'll explode next week if we don't fix it oh okay we might want to get on that <laughs> well then if you as a leader or the manager go okay i hear what you're saying and next week that duct tape has been removed with the proper cast iron brace or what something something mm-hmm. like that that's when people start believing you I and mean, people say oh, okay the boss actually said in this conference room on wednesday at 3 30 that we're going to try and improve up time when he came down here a week later and he talked to me he listened or he or she listened and i came up with some good ideas and within a month or so and he kept me up he or she kept me updated say look i can't do it straight away but we're going to get it do cycle, so on and so forth. That's when people start buying in because they're not going to do anything where there is no perceived payoff or outcome. Yeah. And so it's not just a simple how do I craft a message. It's how do you, um, h- how do I, how do I uh, demonstrate that I'm I'm inter- interested in this stuff? And we we talk a lot about uh, many textbooks and quality discussions how the japanese sort of pioneered this approach mm-hmm. and it's how did the, how did those leaders work out a way of making quality uh, quality a, a really important thing or reliability just something a part of what they do and the answer was or at least in revolves around they listened yeah it was the workforce that came up with all these wonderful ideas and the leaders actually spent most of the time collating these ideas prioritizing which ones are the best and then making them happen yeah. all of a sudden 
a culture was born. Yeah. Now it's a, my first engineering job was a manufacturing engineer. And I thought, oh, well, I need to go to the, on the manufacturing floor. And my coworker engineer team, they wore nice clean clothes. They, you know, went out to lunch. They rarely walked down the stairs to the plant. Rarely. Oh, you're going downstairs here. Take this message to Joe. You know, oh, you know, Sarah needs this over here. Can you carry that down there for Okay. You know, and I spent way more time on the floor. Um, Just because one is, if I'm going to help make this equipment run better or more efficient or get more throughput or reduce scrap or all these charters I was, uh, you know, assigned to take care of, you know, all these charters I'm assigned to take care of, I needed to understand the equipment. And who better to understand the equipment than the people that are actually running it? And so I spent a lot of time with those folks. And I remember Nancy came up one time and says, you know, we're getting these lumps. And if you cut them open, it's, it's the polymer's not melted. So, you know, it, it happened in the extrusion line when we put the jacket on. It's, you know, could you take a look at that? Because it's really causing us to scrap a lot. And so here's a, a, a lead and an and a area that packaged these cabling products saying, you know, I've done what I can do. Um, can you help solve this one? And uh, make a long story short, we spent a lot of time at the extruding area doing different setups and different uh, mixing methods and heats and all kinds of stuff and working close with the... Because the guys doing the extrusion, they don't have their hand on the line the whole time feeling the bumps. They didn't know they were happening. And I bring over... Right you know, a whole bucket of them saying, this came from the last run you guys did. I know you don't remember it. You're running one after another, but this is causing all this problem, you know? And they're like, oh, well, we don't want to do that. And so they were very willing to help. And somebody was actually standing next to them saying, all right, well, how could this happen? (laughs) You know, and they weren't designers of screws and and all the the polymer scientists or anything else but my co-workers were all polymer scientists and like oh well that that's a mechanical problem you got to just fix that like okay i'm not getting much in here (laughs) so but both those teams that i ended up working with you know were on board completely and Mm -hmm. The, the funny part was we had a, like a show and tell of accomplishments in the last quarter or something like that. And I printed out a control chart because we were starting to use a whole pile of different control chart type stuff. And one of our projects was to use them. And it showed the 14 defects out of a 10,000 foot uh, reel uh, over and over and over again. It, you know, it bounced around and it was very stable of how many defects we were getting per reel. And then we made the change to a new um, screw, a new technique in, uh, of melting and mixing this polymer. So that we got re- melt, made sure everything was melted. And it went to less than one for, uh, at that point, it was like a couple hundred re- reels of this stuff. It was just, if it, it was your heartbeat, you went flatline. Right. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. And I printed out in this huge piece of paper and, and put it on the desk and said, and they walked, the senior management walked in and, and they didn't even hear the briefing. They didn't know what the topic was. And they looked at the chart and they says, well, what happened here? <laughs> you know, they didn't know whether it was good or bad or anything. And then they were, they were in the story and like, oh, this is way cool. And they 
can you print this on a smaller paper so I can share it <laughs> and talk to other people yeah. about it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Here you go. All of a sudden you got people buying in. But I think I think we talked about upstairs and downstairs people in mm-hmm. the past where you have those engineers who go out to lunch and uh, it's got the people to take the post at notes downstairs to Jillian and Bob because they don't like going downstairs and yeah. all sorts of things. And But the people who are downstairs, if people from upstairs aren't prepared to even just walk downstairs and just start a conversation every single day, then they're not invested in anything you say. They're just not. It's a human thing. Mm-hmm. Why, why would you, as an engineer who doesn't want to go to the downstairs people on a matter of principle, how can you then expect these people to take anything you say with any level of priority? They won't. Yeah. If you don't care, they don't. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and I think it's, and, and, and you know, the cultural part is is that touch, that conversation, that listening. And it, it's a, a key part of, you know, I, I can ask questions about this extrusion process. I have a little bit more knowledge about how it's working, but I don't have all of it. And you, you're here every day and see lots of different solutions to all kinds of different problems. You know, what? let's get some feedback. And it's the same as if you're the senior manager coming down saying, hmm, what keeps you up at night? And then go act on it, make that happen. Um, I think it that's what changes and shifts a culture is the listening and then following through make stuff happen. Uh, and it can happen at all kinds of levels, but it's got to be consistent. I've had middle managers that, you know, see the senior boss says, hey, we need ideas. And they would filter the ideas to the ones they thought would be politically correct to send up. And I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, you're just a stick in the mud here. You're in the way. Yep. <laughs> you know? Names to be not revealed in that case. <laughs> I love doing it. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, you know, back to Mark's question is the, the methods that we uh, deploy in the aim of increasing uptime or improving reliability is our technical prowess. That's one part of what we do. It's the recognizing that you're going to have resistance to just change generically. And then even worse is when it's a cultural change in the organ or cultural resistance in the organization where it's like, Oh yeah, just go do stuff and they feel good about it. Um, That's a more complicated problem to solve. And it starts with listening. It starts with uh, sometimes is bringing awareness to and getting a champion on senior managers that that understand how important it is and how much more valuable it is, those kinds of things. But it starts with just help other people solve problems, make their work and life better, those kinds of things. It starts chipping away at it at all levels. And and then the cultural starts to sap, oh, yeah, we need to do this. Um, but if it's just imposed, like you said, Chris, it's just not going anywhere. No, the having an additional process is not going to all of a sudden revolutionize anyone's <laughs> approach to what they do. No, uh, no, I don't think so. So anyway, that's uh, one facet of, of I think, uh, chipping away at Mark's comments and questions there. I'm sure there's some more in there. I'll, I'll bring it back to you again, Chris. I should send it. I'll mm-hmm. send you a copy of it. I, I 
kind of hit you cold with it today. Uh, but if you're like Mark, uh, you can leave us a comment or a question, and we certainly will will address it and send you back some answers and thoughts. And uh, one, a shout out to Mark for going back in the back catalog, episode 77. Yeah. Seems, that was a long time ago. <laughs> that was before podcasts were invented. Yeah, it's getting close, yeah. And yeah. we used to use uh, um, uh, tin cans and strings to record that. Uh, Yep. way back when. Um, but anyway, head over to ascendoreliability.com slash go slash SOR like Mark did. And you can leave us a comment or you can even leave a voice message. Um, most people seem to use LinkedIn or direct email, which work just fine. You can find that for Chris and I and the other hosts uh, on our about pages on Ascendo, or uh, you can find us on LinkedIn also directly and whichever way works for you. But anyway, everybody, thanks for listening. And Chris, thanks for the chat. And uh, hopefully I added a couple of insights there for Mark to consider. And uh, Mark, if you're listening all the way through, let us know how we did. And uh, if you got some follow-on questions, that'd be great. Um, so with that, Chris, I think we'll wrap this one up. No problem, Fred. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show, please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.